Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Ariel Garten, one of the founders of brain-sensing device Muse. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation, mindfulness, and brain-focused practices have the power to change our lives. Whether you're just learning to meditate or want to deepen your practice, Meditation Studio, with hundreds of guided meditations and over 50 amazing teachers, and Muse, which provides great feedback on your practice, are two awesome tools you'll want to have in your back pocket. Now, on to the interview. This week's guest is Erica Ariel Fox, New York Times bestselling author of Winning from Within, a breakthrough method for leading, living, and lasting change. She's a leadership and negotiation expert and advisor for CEOs and top teams and a lecturer at Harvard Law School. Erica believes some of our biggest, toughest negotiations are the ones we have within ourselves. If you've ever felt torn by your head, your heart, or your gut, the framework that she's created will hold enormous meaning for you. We all have many dimensions to us, our intuition, our willpower, emotional intelligence, cognitive reasoning, and she shares how we can best work with all of these dimensions. She also shares practices we can do that will help us tap into our innate wisdom so that we can better manage many of the bigger challenges we face at work and in life. Now, here's Erica. Erica, it is such a pleasure to have you on Untangle today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really, really happy, Patricia. I've been so looking forward to this. Yay. I told you this before, and I'll say it again. I really loved your book. I read it cover to cover. I'm really curious what initially got you interested in this whole idea of winning from within or this internal negotiation. What sort of led you to this framework? I graduated from Harvard Law School in 1995, and I started teaching there in 1996. And my passion was in the program on negotiation, where we taught negotiation and conflict resolution and I had mentors who were really some of the pioneers in the field. And we talked about getting to yes, which many people know as win-win or the Harvard mm-hmm. concept and difficult conversations. And we felt confident. We had a lot of things to offer people. And at a certain moment, I just hit a wall. It was like a personal and public wall. I think I mentioned in the beginning of the book that both of my parents passed away within the right. same year. And then within that same year was 9-11. And so as a conflict resolution professional, I was shaken by that. But as a human being, I was equally shaken by the loss of my parents. And I had time to really step out pretty early in my career. Like someone might have a midlife crisis in their 50s and I wasn't 30. But I I reflected a lot on what we understood about conflict, what we understood about negotiation. And I really came to notice and observe that all the focus on how you negotiate with other people and what to do with difficult people and what to do even with armed conflict between countries, the field really had nothing to say about how you negotiate with yourself. And it just didn't make any sense to me because this is so fundamental to how you would interact with any other person, personally or professionally. And I got really curious, like, what is out there? What can we say about how you relate to yourself first? Was it that moment of 
dealing with so much loss in such a short period of time that made you reflect on what was going on internally that drove you from that external to internal negotiation? I think part of it was just by force of the situation, having so many difficult conversations, some of them around literally like the funerals. And then, of course, really challenging conversations with my siblings and the reflection that I knew communication skills and good listening skills and problem solving skills. And none of those things really, at the end of the day, helped me be successful Mm. in the most tender, most important, most meaningful conversations. There was something deeper. There was something more fundamentally human that was guiding me successfully or not, but that's what actually mattered. And that was a key that we were missing. It's so interesting how you talk about it because often you do hear these sort of different voices that may compete inside of you. I think everybody knows this feeling, I'm sure you do, of this tug of war. You know, should I say yes? Should I say no? But often it's just a muddle inside your head. And I found it very often. And I'm trying really hard to be a good person mm-hmm. and do the right thing. But those point me in different directions. And now my head is just confused and it's a mess. And it's really, it's like a right. debate with seven debate teams. And that can be very paralyzing. If you want to try to fulfill all of those things, sometimes I feel, then you just can't do anything. Let's start talking about that framework. So we've got these competing voices in our heads. You're saying you want to get as much clarity as possible internally before you even begin to negotiate with people externally. Yeah. And that's part of how I built on the negotiation material. Because for a long time, I know many of your listeners know this, and also it's very fundamental to mindfulness practice and to Buddhist practice of witnessing and observing the mind. You have an internal voice and you need to be aware of your internal voice. And in the process of working this material through, I came to articulate that you don't have an internal voice, you have internal voices. And to be mindful of the range of voices that are speaking at the same time and to honor them as each having their own truth to sort of fine tune your awareness, your mindfulness to hear each of those voices, even ones that are less loud than others. And more and more understanding that that internal negotiation and sort of internal witnessing of the different voices was the best way to a healthy decision that you would feel good about in the end. How do you think about the different parts of your brain within the framework of your study? At a very high level, we have a right brain and a left brain and a front of our brain or mammalian brain and a back of our brain, um, the less evolved reptilian brain. That creates four quadrants. And it's obviously, it's not as literal as that. And you have the corpus callosum in the middle and information can transfer across it. But roughly speaking, those four quadrants actually create on an fMRI evidence that there's specialization in different dimensions of the brain that align quite closely with what I've called the big four, Mm. which are the dimensions of self that are most fundamental that you can cultivate awareness of and then learn how to be choiceful about. It's really unbelievable when you look at the brain science research that actually affirms what I was writing. And so neuroscientists came to similar conclusions that I did, but I was coming at it from a different discipline. Well, let's talk about the big four because I hear what you're saying. And I think that's why your book resonated so much with me. And I loved both clarity and simplicity of Mm. each of these areas. Thank Um, you. Yeah. And so I even started like after I finished the book this weekend, I was working on a particular challenge myself and I'm thinking, okay, that's your 
dreamer and that's, that's awesome. you are a thinker. And there you, so let's start talking about that so everybody has a sense of the big four and then we'll get a little bit deeper into it. Well, I appreciate what you're saying. And Bill Urey and Roger Fisher were two teachers of mine in law school. And they used to say in terms of taking frameworks that were user-friendly, they used mm-hmm. to say, you should take some ideas and make them simplified, but not simple. Exactly. So these ideas, like you get it, you're like, got it, check, check, check. You can get it. It's simplified. But the deeper and deeper and deeper you go into the content, you find how rich and the deeper you go, the more transformational it is. In simplified terms, I research archetypes and many, many systems to talk about different aspects of self. And I landed on these big four that talk about as the big four because they seem most universal to me. And also they seem most helpful to me in working with people. And they are the dreamer, the lover, the thinker, and the warrior. And those pretty much are what they sound like. The dreamer is about possibilities of the future, and the lover cares about people and relationships. The thinker takes perspective and reasons out problem solving, and the warrior is about performance, is about what you do. And to come back to what you said, any one of those can be in you in a centered, calm, wise, compassionate place, and you can act on any of those in that way. And you can get hooked and triggered in such a way that your pattern is to act out ineffectively or even harmfully in any one of those four. So that's why you have to figure out for yourself what your profile is, what your patterns are, particularly in terms of where you get triggered. Now, is there a pattern overall to like, are some people an 80% dreamer, some people 60% on relationships and sort of emotional reactions. How is it our goal to be balanced with these four? This is a great question. Balance is a funny word. What I would say is that they kind of have to work in harmony in Mm -hmm. that in any given moment, you might need a lot of lover and less thinker. Like if you have a teenager who's heartbroken from their first relationship and you want to empathize, your thinker and warrior aren't that helpful in that moment. But if you have a kid running in the street, you want to say, well, if you get hit by this car, that's going to be really sad. And you know, you right. like, get in the street, get the kid out of the street. No, So yeah. balance sounds like on a scale of one to 10, if you keep them all at five, that's going to be good. And I feel, I mean, that's just not true. It's more like you have equal access mm-hmm. all the time. And in a situation where you really need inspiration or innovation, your dreamer is good at that. And maybe you should call on that 100% in that yeah. moment. I don't know how you feel about it, but very few people have actual flexibility to move in between these things. I very rarely have seen someone who can stand in their center and just easily move back and forth naturally with access to all of these four. Very, very rare. Yeah, I can see if you're dealing with a particular problem, whether at work or in a personal relationship, that you can mentally access each of those. I mean, I looked at the dreamer as your intuition and the thinker as that reasoning and the strategic part of it. And the lover is your relationship and your emotional connection with something. And the warrior is your willpower. And like you were saying, right? And so I can mentally do that, but I don't know if I'm actually in something, if I would be able to so easily... I probably could identify each of those, but I might not be able to move as quickly between them in action. You've now named the central insight of all of winning from within. Oh, cool. <laughs> no, really, you have. That's awesome. You really have. Because this is what I observed, and this is what I called the performance gap. People can know mentally, I know what I should say or do in this situation, 
And then actually, it's not what we do. Like, I should stand up for myself, but then actually, I agree to volunteer for the millionth time, or I might feel like I want to listen and get consensus. But actually, what we're doing is yelling and being rigid in our opinion. Like, everyone knows Mm. a lot of good behavior, and everyone who listens to this program and cares about consciousness and wise choices and skillful means, all of us can produce good behavior in a workshop. Right. You know, like everyone can do a role play. Right. And be like, yes, yes, that was it. But then in life is not a role play. I mean, life is like the heat of the moment in relationships that matter with topics that are high stakes for us. And just knowing intellectually what, exactly what you just said, if you just understand it conceptually, you cannot produce skillful means when it really matters in your life. That's why the winning from within approach is not about understanding the framework. It's really about tapping into these essential archetypes and opening up your experientially opening up your access to the qualities that you, Patricia, just described, your own intuition, your own willpower, emotional intelligence, cognitive reasoning. You have to have access to those almost as a set of arteries. If one of them is clogged, you might know the words to say. But if you've clogged up the artery of imagination and intuition in real life, it will be very hard for you to sound visionary. So you could practice visionary statements all day long. You've got to open up the artery that fuels the dreamer in you. Then you'll be able to call on it, you know, in an actual situation. That's a very cool way of putting it because you talk about like the worlds of action versus the worlds of reflection. Yes. And then you just mentioned also the performance gap, which is your sort of the way you are currently reacting to something versus how you'd optimally. How you actually know you should. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So what is like, how do we access these qualities? Like what is the practice or practices that we do to really become proficient in being versus doing these qualities, if you will. Well, the way that I talk about it is these four parts of self, Mm -hmm. which again, it is simplified. There are many beautiful frameworks like voice dialogue, like gestalt, many that talk about many more voices. I've just focused on these four, but then there's different aspects of awareness and mindfulness, which you have so much wisdom on in this program, which I call the use of the lookout. Right. Right. It's just a part of you that can look inside and track which of the big four are you really listening to at the moment. So before you can choose to change anything, you still need that witness. Who's talking to me right now? Who am I listening to? And then if you give that information to the part of you that I call the captain, who's sort of at the helm driving, the captain can make a better choice. But as you say, you have to have done the practices leading up to that. I mean, it's kind of like what you do on the mat and off the mat. You have to have done the practices on the mat to open these arteries so that off the mat, you can actually choose to use them. Right. So yeah, there's a lot of practices and that's not a bad way of thinking about it. You know, these are practices that you can do out of high stakes situations to prepare yourself to be able to call on the different parts of you when it really matters in your actual life. And so when you talk about the practices, are these that is like meditation, what is it? therapy? Is it a combination of kind of doing these workshops where you get to role play? What are some of these practices? Yeah, I think it depends on how deep a commitment somebody wants to make. I mean, like at a simple level, I have a toolbox, a toolkit box of cards. You can get that box of cards, right? 
And you, those are very practical things you can do on a daily basis for 30 days and you can practice those things and that's helpful. And then there's really working on something therapeutically, either individually or in a group for many, many years. And then mm -hmm. in between that, I would say there are these experiential courses that I lead and other people lead, which is a deep, deep dive into how to open up these dimensions of self. And I'd be kidding if I said, oh, I can give you a five minute practice that mm -hmm. will really shift in a very transformational way patterns that you've practiced for 40 years. But I can say to you that in a particular kind of container environment, you can actually do that in a matter of a couple of days using the methodology that I can say for sure. Yeah. And do you just teach these courses at Harvard or you teach also throughout the country, world, et cetera? Mostly what I personally am doing is actually CEOs in large global companies because yeah. my sense is that those people influence the lives of a lot of people. I mean, they just do. They could have hundreds of thousands of employees or they could have, I'll give you an interesting example. They could have various countries that they negotiate treaties with. So if you can shift those people, you can make a shift that has an enormous ripple effect. So we just did a workshop two weeks ago, I think, in Spain. And we were talking with executives about the dimension of the lover, which is how do you care for your people? And how do you build trust or repair trust if it's broken? And all of these kinds of emotional intelligence and human-related questions. Mm -hmm. So we asked them to get into groups and to imagine if they just led from the lover, what kinds of policies would they explore at their company? And mm -hmm. one of the people who's not an HR person, who's not an O&D or learning person, said, I'm really struck by we have a paternity leave policy and a maternity leave policy, and they're the same but no men ever take the paternity leave policy. So in practice, no one really thinks you really can do it, right? Because no one actually does it. Wow. And he said, I want to try to find out how many men in senior positions have wives who are going to give birth sometime in the next, let's say, nine months or six months. And I want to personally speak to each of those men and encourage them to take our paternity leave policy and to demonstrate to everyone in the organization that men and women have equal responsibility and equal opportunity as new parents. Yeah. And how amazing. And this is like a flagship organization in the country. So wouldn't it be cool if that organization started to model paternity leave as an equally important part of a professional person's life? So like, here's just a person asking themselves, how could I practice a more heart-centered leadership? And that's what he came up with. So for me, if he actually does it, which yeah, I'll up and find out, he would have never come up with this remotely as something he would care about if he weren't practicing specifically how to use his people orientation as a leader. And it's such a great thing to do to help people get out of perhaps a fixed or rigid mindset to just get them thinking a little bit differently. So you give somebody a model to think about, just think about relationships or in your four quadrants, we call it the lover. Yeah, And just to sit with what it would mean if I thought about that for the first time, how would I approach this? And you could be opening up a whole new way of thinking for someone that's never thought that way before. That's a really cool thing to introduce to someone. Yeah. And I think we have different ways of thinking about it. Like in another body of work, we might say, looking at different chakras, the chakra is really not open and how are we going to... Right. Right. I mean, uh -huh. we know that there's somatic ways of doing that and there's ways of using music and art and poetry, kinetic, the sensory yeah. activities, I mean, all of those things that we all know are really helpful. And those are the same things that help here. 
And to come back to the where you started with the brain, we just ask executives to take a leap of faith that their left brain education has given them a certain amount of capacity. And in order to move forward, to really, I mean, I tell them to be a 360 degree leader, they have to take a leap of faith into their right brain capacity for learning. And that is all the things we've just talked about and breathing and connecting with another person and using the body to going out in nature. I mean, all those things that we know. Again, part of what I am really passionate about is taking all of these practices that people in the self-development, personal growth, human potential part of society for 30 years have known and experimented and proved how they can be helpful and acting as a bridge to bring those things into senior business environments. So the innovation is partially how to translate all of those things for people who influence a lot of people, but in a way that they can actually access. Have you ever thought about introducing these practices to people in the medical profession who have been trained to think so much on the left brain to be diagnosticians and solving problems? It's a really interesting question. I do think of myself in some ways as a change agent. I'm looking at society broadly. So when I think about that specifically, I think John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction has been so hugely impactful in healthcare. And it's so broadly accepted. Insurance reimburses acupuncture and all sorts of creative alternative interventions. When I look at society, part of the reason I'm focused on business executives is I think there's been very little traction in that domain of society. It's not the only one. Also, for example, I've tried other disciplines, like I spent a bunch of time focusing on lawyers and judges. And to be frank with you, I didn't find, broadly speaking, there was enough openness in that profession at that time to be experimental with yourself, to reflect on yourself. And what I found, which is counterintuitive to many people, is senior business people who I've worked with do have a curiosity. They feel like if every industry is being disrupted, they understand they have to disrupt themselves. They can't just keep going. Right. And that there is an openness to say, okay, what we have is not working. So can right. we try something else? And that's where I focus my effort. And I think it's so great that there's like a window of opening where they're saying this isn't working or this is really better. And yes. even if it's just because the market is negative or there's something, it's just a great impetus to get them to think about what it would take to innovate or to be different or to you see enough examples of this working. And what's also great is that I love what you were just saying about it could be chakras, but with senior business leaders, you're not going to start with talking about exactly. chakras. So exactly. Although, find a way to talk about this. Yes, but to come back to what we said. So I might say, so this is a lookout practice. And we're going to do some simple movement. I wouldn't call it dancing, you know, some simple movement. And as we do that, I just want you to look inside and pay attention, any sensations in the body, any emotions yeah. that arise, thoughts. And then we might do movements that mm-hmm. actually open up each of the chakras. We just wouldn't call right. it that. Not like we're trying to trick people, but we might say in certain traditions, this would be named differently. And we're calling it a mindfulness practice because that's the point is to bring lost wisdom, timeless wisdom, contemplative practice and translate it in a way that can do this kind of consciousness raising work in an environment that really doesn't have very much of it. Well, and it's funny because a few years ago, you wouldn't have even talked about it as a mindfulness practice. So exactly, you can see exactly. how far we've come. That's yeah. right. That's part of what you're doing in the culture. And it's amazing to me how often people say now things they would have never, not only they wouldn't have said it, they wouldn't have even understood it. 
Right. Exactly. It would have just sort of washed over them. And that's kind of the other thing that I really gravitated to in the book is your concept of the center of well-being, also a timeless concept. And you talk about how we connect to our core by watering the seeds of possibility or tapping into our innate wisdom. How do you talk about these things? Is this the center of it all really? And is this sort of the Voyager concept or how would you explain this to us? Yeah, what I would talk about it with people in a workshop and I would say it the same way here is that all of us know what it feels like to be off center. We all know the feeling of just like we're fragmented or just anxious. And one of the things that meditation does so magnificently is give practices for coming back to center, coming back to, as you've talked about gratitude, talked about a calm, wiser, knowing everyone has that, everyone can actually access it. But most people, I think, not just because we're all busy, but because we don't all have access to these teachings, yeah, yeah. just haven't either experienced it or have any idea how to access that state of being by choice. It's very revolutionary for people mm-hmm. to understand that. It's not just an accident or you felt warm and sweet at your child's graduation. You can feel warm and connected any day you want. It doesn't have to be your wedding day. But could people have reference points for like, well, there was a day when I felt really open and connected to humanity and I felt part of something bigger, but it's like three days in a person's life they can think of. And it could be all the time. And people, it's an amazing thing to introduce people to the idea that not that we are all in this incredibly joyful, compassionate stance every minute of the day, but just the idea that you can choose, you can notice that you're not there and you have practices to choose to try to bring yourself back. That's what's extraordinary about mindfulness and other meditation practices. And it works in this context the same way it works in every other context. Would you say that it's kind of the practices that are associated with the big four and then the three transformative concepts of Lookout, Captain, and Voyager that help you disentangle and reset so that you can connect with your core? That's exactly what it is. I mean, getting untangled is a very good description of this process. You become aware by turning your attention inward of what's going on inside. You can tease it out. You learned that you can make a choice. And the Voyagers is just inviting you to look at how much of these are patterns. But there's a lot of, I talk about it as unblending. I think internal family systems has a similar way of talking about it. Like there is your core, the center of well-being that is never broken. It is never wounded. It's There's a purity of inner light, of inner goodness, basic goodness that is there. And people carry around a lot of myself and everyone, I think, stories about ways that we are not good, not whole, not beautiful in some dimension. And the center of well-being is a part of you that is always whole, that is always beautiful, that is always essential. And all of these practices are designed to help us live from that knowing, that basic goodness. Yeah. You talk about it as this sort of journey to your bigger self. And I I like that very much because if in the middle of a conflict or being triggered, you can be that bigger self or you can tap into that core, it can really help you react and respond more productively. And the other thing I wanted to ask, there are a lot of people that kind of blame their situations on other people or they don't see their own role in the results that they're getting. How do you get people to even open their mind to that or 
if you're not open, you wouldn't come to your workshop or you wouldn't read this book because you (laughs) you wouldn't be able to see that. Well, no, we have plenty of skeptics and cynics and people who (laughs) are coming because they're required to come. One of my friends, and it's not me, one of my friends coined a very succinct way of saying the journey of what you're talking about. And he said, we're trying to help people shift from life happens to me. Yes. Life happens by me. Life happens through me. Life happens as me. And I have always found that that is really a beautiful way to express the shift, the fundamental shift that we're trying to foster. The one you're talking about, literally just from life happens to me to life happens by me. Like Mm -hmm. I actually have some agency in what I experience. just not like life happens to me and I have no choice in how I experience any of that. But then to see yourself as connected to something bigger than yourself, life happens through me. It's not my own personal story, drama, narrative. There's some bigger forces at work here. And life happens as me. Again, it's what you said. It's really connecting me to something bigger. It's asking questions like, what does life need from me? Which is a different question than even what's my life purpose? Because my life purpose can still be, what do I want to achieve in the world? What do I want to contribute? And the higher question might be, what does life need from me? Why am I here? What was I created here to do? And those questions you can get at when you start getting out of life happens to me. But when you get all the way to life happens as me, then you really are in a stance of service, in a stance of what is the still small voice asking you to do and be. And it's very liberating to get all the way there and to try to live in that stance. So how would I process a question like, what does life need from me? It's a shift that you would have to make. You couldn't, if you ask yourself that question, in the middle of your working day and you had the brain waves that function as you, you're in an action mode, you get things done, you'd come up with an answer that would still come from your ordinary mind, your day-to-day mind. So one of the answers to that is you would do some practices that would help you slow your mind down, slow the breath, shift your attention away yeah. from the to-do list and the emails and all of this. And maybe that's from beautiful music or nature or solitude and silence or Mm -hmm. deep connection with a human or an animal or whatever the shifts in behavior are that get you to a completely different state of being, one that is slower, that is quieter, that's less connected to self, right? That's less identified with me, my job, my role, even my family, my friends. And when you soften the identity of, let's say, the little S self, and you Mm -hmm. soften into the big S self, and many traditions have different small mind, big mind, small mindedness, big mindedness. When you shift into big mind or big self, or what I call the captain, just to make it user friendly, when you shift into a higher state of consciousness, and then you ask questions like, what does life want for me? And what does life want from me? Mm. You get very different answers. And those answers, by the way, don't have to come in words. You could draw a picture, you could see an image. You could have a memory or fragrance or a sense come across your experience and say, there's a hint, there's a clue in what life wants for me and life wants from me. But I mean, I experience even now as I'm talking to you, my voice is slowing down, right? I mean, as I imagine myself coming into contact with a question like that, I feel myself slowing down and that's what's required to get to deeper qualities of insight and wisdom. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I mean, I think that is what we need and many of us find it in meditation, but it is a practice. And I'm curious, like for you personally, what practices do you do 
every day? Or is there a practice in particular that you do every day to sort of stay in touch with these things that you're teaching? I wish that I could say to you, this is my morning practice. I've heard you speak about your morning practice and I find it very inspiring. I more have a discipline of truly of a mindfulness moment to moment, Mm -hmm. what I would call a lookout practice. And I particularly lean into when I experience myself as in resistance or rejection or like, I don't want to do this. And I do quiet myself and try to inquire, what is it that I really need? What part of me really needs something that's creating that resistance? And I have a lot of practices in those moments. Again, none of us necessarily do our practice every time we wish, but I do them frequently to really try to explore and imagine and picture the range of parts of myself and range of aspects that are bigger than me. This is what yes. I'm asking, telling you now, you know, what does life need from me in this moment? And so I would say in a way, it's a practice of going from something personal to something transpersonal, like yeah. get out of my story, even though on a personal material plane, it could also be true that my partner is late for the 20th time. And that is actually annoying. Like, okay, right. that doesn't go away because there's a deeper lesson. Okay, that's true on this level, but there, what's the deeper meaning of it? What's the deeper purpose of it? How does this help me? Yeah. But Erica, see, you're wi- I think I might be wired in the same way. You're wired to ask those questions yes. in every moment. Yes. And it can be, for me at least, it can be torture sometimes, yeah. but it gives me ultimately so much clarity. To be- yeah. And honestly, it's hard for me to imagine what life would be like if I wasn't doing that all the time. Right. And when I often, in these workshops, honestly, I literally have to remind myself that introspection and self-development and self-inquiry are not things that a lot of people are doing all day, every day. I know. Because I literally can't imagine if I didn't have that conscious dialogue going on all the time in my own mind. And yes, sometimes I wish it would go away, believe me. And there are moments of clarity and quietness. For me, it's really solitude, even though I do a lot of public speaking and people are surprised to know that I'm an introvert. I do love teaching people, but honestly... I get my energy refueled from just quiet, you know, being slow and being on my own. Is your husband also very introspective? Does he ride your sort of curiosity with you? That's a fascinating question. I think that he, he certainly has the capacity to introspect, but one of the ways that we're different that I think is really cool and interesting is my tendency, and I'll give you an example, my tendency is often to go to like a big picture, spiritual inquiry about the world. And his often is to be really present in this moment. So I remember last summer, he has a boat and we were sailing and there's an amazing, I can't say it in English actually, because I've been in the Netherlands for too long, but there's an amazing part of sailing where you can anchor the boat at a place where at different times of low tide, it's just beach. There's nothing. So it's not a harbor. There's no one around. There's nothing. And then in high tide, you can sail away. And I remember walking across the beach when it was low tide. And what I was thinking was, God, you know, I think about Adam and Eve and the first human and what it must have been like to emerge from the dust of the earth. And like, like, wow, you know, when consciousness first came into form and blah, blah, blah. And my husband comes over and he's like, isn't it cool? Like the bird make that footprint on the ground that like, you can really see that this duck is walking faster than that one. And so my first is like, what? You're thinking about ducks? Like I'm thinking about the beginning of all creation. And then I thought, what am I thinking about? You know, like I'm off in some whatever thinking about Genesis. And actually 
what's happening right here and right now is that there are birds walking on this beach, like right here and right now. Right. That is what is present. And he calls me to that. Someone said, sometimes it's the longest distance is to the here and now. Yeah. And for me, that is a big risk. <laughs> right. I'm always looking like the deeper teaching. And it's like, well, what's happening right here and right now is it's mm. raining. So we should go inside. And I'm like, wow, climate change. Why is it raining? It shouldn't be right. raining right now. It should oh, be sunny. So fun. <laughs> it's just like be in the moment. Be so, in the moment. That's yes. your practice. So I think having him calling me to that is, yeah. is a really valuable balance. Well, there are a few quotes I pulled from your book that I really liked and, uh, and then I'll let you go. But I, so I want to share these. One is that change isn't easy, but neither is standing still yeah. and that you're always a work in progress, which I think our audience already knows this. And that I love that one of your, what you're helping people do is sort of engage the voyage of their lives with their eyes wide open, which I just think is such a great gift to be able to give to people. Yeah. And I think all of us do know at some level, the idea that we're a work in progress, but to experience that compassion for yourself when you fall down or when I see myself falling in these patterns over and over and to say, yeah, I'm a work in progress, but then actually give yourself a break. Like it's okay. You're a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. And Mm -hmm. to find some of the kindness and benevolence that is easy to give other people, but not always easy to give ourselves. True. That's a big part of shifting from an idea that you know to an experience that you have. So Erica, do you have any favorite quotes that inspire you every day? I do have a quote, which is very consistent with what we were just talking about. And I actually have this on a whiteboard in my office. So I see it every day. And it's an Anais Nin quote, which probably many of your listeners know. It's the quote that says, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. I think that's a really good sentiment to live by. It's just an invitation to keep going and growing and making mistakes and getting back up. And like we were saying, give yourself a break, but keep going. Yeah. And to know that there are always going to be times where we're down and there will always be times when we're up and that's sort of the cycle of life. So exactly (laughs) for better or for worse. So I just want to thank you so much for all of your wisdom. This was such a great interview and I loved your book. I know I said that already, but it just, it gave me so many really great ways to think about things. So I so appreciate that and all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Well, I super appreciate having the chance to meet you and talk to you. And it's always very nurturing to find a kindred spirit and a fellow traveler. And I feel like that's what you are. So thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks so much to Erica for all her insights. You can order a copy of her book at Amazon or all major booksellers. And find more on Erica at ericaarielfox.com or mobiusleadership.com. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at founders at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store and check out Muse at choosemuse.com. We'll see you next time.